Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. Just in case you haven't heard the first brief three-minute introductory episode where I explain a little bit more about who I am and what it is that I'm hoping to do with this podcast, I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal organizations, and also had the good fortune to have lived in several countries outside the United States, which puts me in a good position to reflect for my American listeners on some issues of interest that are going on outside the U.S., In the first full episode of OK Talks, for example, I talked to a friend who's currently working as a doctor in Manila about how the Philippines is confronting the coronavirus and what the political impacts of the disease might be there. What I'm going to talk about in this episode is related to the pandemic as well, but not quite as directly to the virus itself, so much as to the response to the virus by a number of right-wing protesters and to America's response to those protests. Those who haven't been following the news super closely might not be aware that in a number of states, I think all of which coincidentally happen to be swing states with Democratic governors, which have responded pretty well to the pandemic, there have been a number of really, really scary protests in which right-wing crazy people have stormed into government buildings. This would be a problem all on its own and quite possibly illegal, since these protesters are breaking stay-home orders and social distancing requirements, but it's especially scary since the protesters have a tendency to demonstrate while armed to the teeth. That leads us to a discussion about how we as a society respond to different kinds of protests from different kinds of people. Regardless of the nature of a protest, a large group of people demonstrating in one place tends to also mean that there are a large number of police officers waiting around there in case something happens. And whether a protest ever goes bad or turns violent or not, often there ends up being some sort of debate, if it did go violent, over whose fault it was, whether the police overreacted or not, Yet that debate doesn't seem to really be happening in these protests where the demonstrators show up better armed than the police. Which strikes me at least as ironic, considering that this appears to me to be a situation where there's a lot more danger than in situations where police reacted much more strongly to protests that didn't seem to present anywhere near the same kind of threat as does one where a third of the people in the crowd are carrying a rifle. This would seem to create a pretty egregious double standard, which is to say... Right-wing protesters can do anything they want, up to and including storming into a government building. Whereas left-wing protesters run the pretty serious risk of getting pepper sprayed in the face and arrested if they get too rowdy. Or maybe it really doesn't have anything to do with ideology. Maybe the reality is just that protesters should be relatively restrained and not overstep, unless of course they show up to protest with an AR-15, in which case they can do whatever they want. But I don't think that's true. I think there's a pretty substantial double standard between how right-wing protests and left-wing protests are responded to in the United States, and I think that's something we should be talking about. Michelle Norris wrote a really good column in the Washington Post the other day. I'm just going to steal a quote from it. Quote, This we know. Black or brown people gathering in the streets or at the state house with rifles and body armor would not be tolerated. They would not be allowed to yell in the face of police officers. They would not be referred to as... <clears throat> very good people, by a sitting president. There would be no debate about First or Second Amendment rights. There would be arrests, lots of them. Norris, of course, is right about the role race plays in the disparity between responses to these protests. But I also kind of doubt that if I had shown up to an Occupy Wall Street rally or a climate march or something with my rifle, and a bunch of my fellow liberal protesters had done the same, that the response either in the media or by law enforcement would have been essentially shrugs. If we're going to talk about the difference in response to conservative versus liberal protests in the United States, 
we need to talk at least a little bit about conservative versus liberal protests in the United States. So almost without a doubt, the most successful resistance movement in the United States has been the civil rights movement, which was overwhelmingly a peaceful movement. By far the most successful civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, was heavily influenced by Gandhi's ideas about nonviolence. King uh, visited India and learned more about Gandhi's movement there and was able to sort of combine those ideas of nonviolence with his own Christian theology. He said, quote, I came to see for the first time that the Christian doctrine of love, operating through the Gandhi method of nonviolence, was one of the most potent weapons available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom. Nonviolent resistance was central to King's movement. He talked about it all the time, uh, and it was super effective. After the Supreme Court had ruled unconstitutional the bus segregation in Montgomery, King said, quote, Christ showed us the way and Gandhi in India showed us that it can work, unquote. With the massive grain of salt that, yes, there are exceptions to this, of course, the vast majority of liberal protests and protest movements in the United States are nonviolent and, this is also important, non-threatening. Whether we're talking about the civil rights movement, gay pride, the women's march, demonstrations against excessive deportations, the overall message of these protests and the movements behind them seem to be about solidarity and support, not intimidation. I have trouble imagining Martin Luther King, for example, calling on his supporters to chuck a brick through George Wallace's window. I have similar difficulty imagining Greta Thunberg calling on her legion of fans to, I don't know, pelt Hummer drivers with hacky sacks. When public sector union employees protested in the Wisconsin state capitol in 2011, I don't think anybody imagines that they would have brought in rifles to add emphasis to their point or scare Republican lawmakers. I also can't imagine that if they had, President Obama would have tweeted that they were very fine people and called on Governor Walker to make a deal with them. And while sure, protesters from the left can be annoying sometimes, it's strange credulity to imagine any substantial left-wing movement of protesters storming into a government building with rifles to implicitly threaten Republican lawmakers. Of course, there have been some exceptions to this. Some people in the civil rights movement disagreed with Dr. King and thought that movement should take a more, let's say, aggressive approach. Some eco-activists in the 90s burned down a ski slope once. The 2015 Black Lives Matter protests in Baltimore pretty clearly got out of hand at one point, although from what I've read, the majority of violence and property damage that occurred in that situation was largely the work of a bunch of teenagers throwing bottles at police and smashing some windows and stuff. And in that situation, leaders of the movement never got behind violence or encouraged that sort of activity and, as far as I understand, condemned it. More recently, since Trump was elected, and we've seen a substantial increase in activity from dangerous, potentially violent, far-right groups that are either fascist or KKK or in some way affiliated with that sort of thing, we've seen a rise in not-so-peaceful protesters on the extreme left in an organization called Antifa. From what I understand, though, Antifa doesn't exactly see itself as a cohesive liberal movement pushing a policy platform. You're not going to see these people out at a you know, Planned Parenthood rally or a, a climate march or something like that. They seem to see themselves more as a check on the aforementioned far-right groups and, from what I understand, are more interested in showing up to like a white supremacist rally to brawl with Nazis than they are, uh, again, in pushing a particular liberal policy platform. Although, honestly, they creep me out a little bit. From what I understand, Antifa hasn't actually, like, seriously threatened Republican lawmakers in any way, and you sure as hell won't see Democratic lawmakers tweeting their support. Bottom line, to the extent that liberal protests in the United States cause a problem, and again, there are exceptions, 
It usually seems to be in the form of being annoying. Blocking a highway, shutting down an airport, something like this, rather than in the form of straight-up violence or threatening violence, which, I'm sorry, is what is implied when you show up to a protest with a semi-automatic rifle on your shoulder. Now, while left-wing activism in the United States has mostly been about solidarity in the form of strikes, boycotts, peaceful marches, and that sort of thing, the same definitely can't be said for resistance coming from the right in the United States. I'm tempted here to just spend the next 15 minutes taking a giant swing at the KKK, but that seems almost too easy, and maybe not 100% fair, since although President Trump may have been too stupid to disavow David Duke when given the chance, most Republicans don't seem to want to align themselves with that particular brand of right-wing activism. But not super peaceful protesting by right-wing activists in the United States certainly goes way beyond just the KKK. The anti-abortion movement, for example. To be fair, some anti-abortion activism, for example, does just take the form of peaceful protests. Although I disagree with their mission, and I think that the name they use for themselves is ridiculous and misleading, the March for Life, uh, for example, really does appear to be mostly just a peaceful march of people gathering in support of the idea that women shouldn't have the right to choose what to do with their own... <sighs> gathering in support of the idea that abortion is bad and should be made illegal. But a lot of that movement has not been so peaceful. Beyond the straight-up assassination of abortion doctors and attempted bombings of abortion clinics, a lot of anti-abortion protests really seem to be just a large group of people standing outside an abortion provider and screaming at and threatening women on what was probably already going to be one of the worst days of their lives. A solid indicator of the reality that these don't seem to be just peaceful protests is the existence of NGOs that provide escorts to walk with women into abortion clinics so they can go safely to and from their appointment. As if to make sure there's absolutely no subtlety, to the reality that a lot of right-wing resistance in the United States seems more about sending a message of intimidation than sending one of solidarity, it's become increasingly common that at right-wing protests, a decent number of the people in the crowd show up armed. And when I say armed, I don't mean that they've got a handgun concealed under their jacket. I mean they're carrying long guns on an AR or Kalashnikov platform chambered for intermediate rounds with a 30-round clip. For those who don't speak gun, that is all to say that these are weapons designed for combat. There's no possibility that the people showing up armed to right-wing protests are actually just a group of hunting buddies who accidentally wandered into the middle of the Michigan state capitol after an afternoon in the duck blind. No, this is intended to send a clear message to politicians, to potential counter-protesters, maybe even to the police, that we are willing and clearly ready to hurt you if we don't get what we want. Either that or all of these guys are just overcompensating for having been unable to think of something witty to write on a sign. Now that we've spent a couple of minutes comparing what left-wing versus right-wing resistance has tended to look like in the United States, let's move on to talking about the differences between response to left-wing versus right-wing resistance. Of course, the vast majority of nonviolent left-wing protests in the United States has been left in peace by law enforcement and has been allowed to go on relatively unobstructed. I don't mean to imply by anything that I'm about to say that the U.S. is some kind of police state that doesn't tolerate protest. However, there have definitely been a lot of easily identifiable situations throughout American history where left-wing resistance, even if it's peaceful, has been greeted by, let's say, overkill or potentially a violent response by law enforcement. Here again, I could pretty easily make a point by just referencing police response in the South of the Civil Rights Movement 
or what happened at Kent State and general attacks on peaceful anti-Vietnam War protesters. But unfortunately, there are a decent number of modern examples that make this point pretty well, too. In the early 2010s, in the wake of the massive financial crash in 2008, the protest movement Occupy Wall Street formed to protest against what they saw, in my opinion rightly, as excessive deregulation of the financial industry that led to the crash in the economy. Did the Occupy Wall Street movement come with some weird quirks? Yeah, sure. But as far as I'm aware, the Occupy Wall Street guitarmy only ever showed up with guitars. Based on the way police often reacted to the Occupy movement, though, you'd think that protesters were actually guerrillas throwing Molotov cocktails. Much to the entertainment of a few particularly loathsome Fox News hosts, the Occupy Wall Street movement generated a whole lot of videos from various different cities in the United States of peaceful protesters being pepper sprayed in the face or whacked and prodded by police officers with batons. In 2012, the law schools at Fordham University and NYU put together a report on law enforcement activity toward the Occupy Wall Street movement. The report showed a systematic effort by police in a number of different cities to repress the movement in a way that definitely crossed some lines. According to Sarah Nuckley, an NYU law professor, quote, all the case studies we collected show the police are violating basic rights consistently and the level of impunity is shocking, unquote. Police response to Black Lives Matter protests have at times gone similarly overboard, most notably in 2014 when the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department showed up to protests in MRAPs, mine-resistant vehicles, with canine units armed with body armor and AR-15s, which they then pointed directly at the protesters. This actually ended up generating criticism from Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Jason Fritz, an army officer and international policing operations analyst, was quoted in the Washington Post saying, You see the police are standing on line with bulletproof vests and rifles pointed at people's chests. That's not controlling the crowd, it's intimidating them. Now I realize I'm setting myself up here to potentially look like a giant moron in only my second ever full podcast episode. Maybe the March for Life actually is routinely met with German shepherds and tear gas, and I just didn't hear about this because the news didn't make its way into the lamestream media. But I can't think of a single example in American history of a right-wing protest being unfairly suppressed or violently put down in some way. And no, the Civil War doesn't count. The Confederacy had it coming. In the context of today's armed right-wing protests against social distancing requirements and stay-home orders put into place by Democratic governors trying to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, protests which on their face violate public health guidelines against large gatherings in the context of the coronavirus, even when right-wing armed protesters have moved beyond simply blocking roads, waving misspelled signs demanding haircuts, to physically storming into the Capitol buildings where elected lawmakers are doing their job, and then shouting without wearing masks into the face of police officers, I've heard nothing about arrests. In response to the latest armed protest at the Michigan state capitol, for example, protests that involved death threats against the governor of that state, as far as I know, nobody was arrested. And in fact, the Michigan state legislature just canceled its legislative session, I guess to make sure that they didn't let any of their governing get in the way of the protesters' Red Dawn cosplay. Meanwhile, a number of media outlets are reporting that at least 80% of the people cited by the NYPD for violating social distancing guidelines were not white. Unfortunately, the anti-social distancing protests are hardly unique as a modern example of armed right-wing protesters acting in a problematic, threatening way with little to no pushback from law enforcement. A couple years back at Richard Spencer's Nazi Palooza in Charlottesville, things turned violent, sure, 
but not because the police did anything untoward to in some way suppress the protesters. Things turned violent because the Unite the Right protesters got into violent brawls with liberal counter-protesters, which culminated in one of the Nazi protesters running over a group of people with his car, killing one of them, as the police, from what I understand, largely stood by along the side. But perhaps the most flagrant example in modern times of almost comically over-the-top right-wing resistance being treated with kid gloves took place back in 2014 in Nevada at the so-called Battle of Bunkerville, in which cattle rancher and really the Rosa Parks of not paying your taxes, Clive and Bundy, along with a bunch of other lunatic anti-government militia types, precipitated an armed standoff with federal agents to demand the return of several of Bundy's cows, which the Bureau of Land Management had finally confiscated after years of trying to get Bundy, who does not recognize the legitimacy of the federal government, to pay the grazing fees he owed for decades of having his cows graze on federal lands. This little insurrection led to a truly insane series of events, including a number of Fox News personalities and elected officials from the Republican Party, you know, the party of law and order, suddenly finding a hero in the form of a serial tax avoider and his affiliated group of armed nutjobs pointing guns at law enforcement and openly musing about their plans to put the women in front so that if there was a firefight, they would be hit and that would generate bad press for the government. Speaking of bad press, most of Bundy's new boosters on Fox News and in the Republican caucus turned tail and ran once Bundy, surrounded by cameras, announced that he wanted to tell us one more thing he knows about the Negro. I doubt that ends well very often. Certainly didn't end well here. But at the end of the day, Bundy and his supporters got the cows back, didn't have to pay the fees, and essentially got away with armed resistance to law enforcement in the United States. A couple years later, when several of Bundy's sons were involved in yet another armed standoff in Oregon, several members of the Bundy clan ended up getting arrested. But they're free now. They got off when the government mishandled the trial against them. For a couple of reasons, we can probably assume that armed left-wing protest would not be tolerated in the United States in the way that apparently armed right-wing protest is. For one thing, despite the best efforts and good intentions of, I'm sure, the vast majority of police officers in the United States, there's overwhelming evidence of racial disparity in our criminal justice system. On average, outcomes for white people do tend to be a little different than outcomes for everybody else in the criminal justice system. Let's be real, the Republicans and the right wing in general in America aren't exactly famous for being a hotbed of ethnic diversity. So I guess it shouldn't come as a huge shock when basically all of the conservative protesters who show up to events with guns turn out to be white people who, again, tend to enjoy an easier relationship with law enforcement than everybody else. I think there's also something to be learned by examining the way Republicans in Congress and their colleagues over at right-wing entertainment outlets like Fox News and Breitbart have reacted to armed right-wing protest versus the way they've reacted to peaceful left-wing protest in the United States. In the right-wing media bubble, for example, as I mentioned before, a deadbeat rancher and the group of domestic terrorists who formed around him were just super cool for pointing weapons at law enforcement officers. And according to the president's own Twitter feed, along with a number of other right-wing outlets, there really doesn't seem to be a whole lot wrong with storming armed into a state capital to demand a change to a law that you don't like. Meanwhile, a couple of football players kneeling during the national anthem at a football game represent the greatest threat to our republic since President Obama wore a tan suit to a press conference. When groups of demonstrators are made up of people that aren't their political allies, 
Republican elected leaders and Republican commentators seem to set the bar a hell of a lot lower for when those groups constitute a risk. Witness the collective trouser soiling on the right in response to the caravan of destitute refugees coming up from Central America back in 2018. Back during the Occupy protests, Republican commentators thought that police crackdowns on the peaceful demonstrators were totally appropriate, and Fox News hosts were positively gleeful watching videos of peaceful protesters getting pepper sprayed in the face. Remember the one time a Fox News commentator said that pepper spray was a food product? More recently, commentators on the right have been outraged by student protests on campuses trying to deplatform conservative speakers. Yeah, okay, in that case they have a point. The deplatforming protests are stupid. But the bottom line is, conservatives in America quite frequently seem to have a big problem with peaceful demonstrators when those demonstrators are on the left, and there's no evidence at all that those same conservatives would suddenly be totally cool with those demonstrators if they only showed up with AR-15s. Furthermore, there's no reason to think that the mainstream media, or even the more left-wing media and Democratic politicians, would support them if they did. A hypothetical group of armed left-wing protesters who stormed into, I don't know, the Alabama state capitol to demand increased funding for community theater productions would not receive the same kind of air cover from the liberal media, the mainstream media, or Democratic politicians that armed right-wing protesters like the Bundy types tend to receive from Fox News and the Republicans. As easy as it is to imagine a much less tolerant response to that hypothetical armed left-wing protest than we're seeing in response to armed right-wing protests for the reasons I mentioned before, it turns out there actually is a direct historical parallel that can help us make this point. In the late 1960s, the Black Panthers conducted a peaceful demonstration in California while armed. Ronald Reagan was the governor of California at the time, and although he was not exactly famous as being a champion of gun control, either as governor of California or later as the president, he could not sign a bill banning open carry fast enough after that Black Panther protest. As he put it, he saw no reason why, on the streets today, a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. As gross as it is that Republican elected officials and their allies on right-wing propaganda networks like Fox would openly embrace threatening armed demonstrations as long as they're being conducted by political allies of theirs, I guess at this point it shouldn't come as a huge shock when you consider the behavior of that party over the last 10 or 15 years. But then what explains the fact that the police often appear to be much more willing to crack down on unarmed liberal protesters if they get a little rowdy than they are willing to take seriously the actual threat of right-wing protesters that are armed with everything from semi-automatic rifles to, in the case of some pictures lately, rocket launchers. Some people on the left would undoubtedly say that the police favor armed right-wing protests over left-wing protesters because the police themselves are bad and oppressive and in favor of the right-wing in America. And to be fair, Republicans have spent the last several decades trying to frame the debate around law enforcement in the United States as though they are the party that supports law and order, whereas Democrats want to live in a lawless hellscape like the movie The Purge. But I don't think either of those arguments hold a lot of water. I don't think the police are like a paramilitary arm of right-wing politics in America, and I think it would be unfair to imply, at least in modern times, that the way the police respond to protests has anything to do with the way individual police officers may or may not vote. Preparing to record this episode, I spent some time talking to a friend of mine who prefers to remain anonymous, who spent several years serving as a police officer in a major American city, and he was able to shed some light on some of the ways in which the known presence of guns... Uh, in a large crowd in any context, 
uh, affect police tactics and how they respond. If you have probable cause to arrest anybody, but you know they have a gun, he told me, you have to approach it from a very different tactical standpoint, I think. Like with the Bundy thing in Oregon, the feds settled for IDing guys and then arresting some of them later. If you can avoid getting into a shootout over a misdemeanor trespass or failure to disperse charge, I think there's a strong incentive to do so. Now, from an immediate tactical and safety standpoint, that makes perfect sense. But we do need to grapple with the reality that from a broader structural sort of societal standpoint, that actually could serve to incentivize the sort of threatening armed protests that we're seeing increasingly now from right-wing activists. Take again the Bundy case, for example. The vast majority of those guys who, when you think about it, really participated in an armed insurrection against law enforcement faced no consequences at the time, and the few that have since faced consequences faced comparatively mild ones, and way after the fact, out of the public view. Beyond their security in the knowledge that the police, for obvious reasons, probably aren't going to want to start a fight with a group of protesters that are better armed than they are, Right-wing demonstrators are further incentivized to show up to protest with guns by the fact that in a lot of states, there's no legal structure in place to stop them from showing up just about anywhere they want with just about any weapon that they want. This has increasingly led to surreal scenes of people in a restaurant some afternoon suddenly being joined by a guy who walks into the building with an assault rifle slung over his shoulder. And how the hell are those people supposed to know if that person is there to order a sandwich or shoot up the place? Think about the kind of crazy instability this creates. I mean, I know the NRA says that the way that you stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. But like most normal people, I think, I don't actually want to feel like I need to bring my rifle every time I go to a Chipotle. And even if I did, well, maybe today isn't one of the days where I want to get into a shootout. This right to openly carry any weapon you want anywhere you want becomes even more surreal in the context of the protests that we're talking about. An armed right-wing demonstrator could probably argue, in some of the cases of these capital protests in various states, that if he walks into a capital building with an AR-15 slung over his shoulder, he has not actually committed a crime up until the moment where he points that AR-15 at the face of a Democratic lawmaker and says, End the quarantine or the girl gets it! Fortunately, that hasn't happened yet. These particular protests haven't escalated to that point. But is it really that hard to imagine? That is basically what happened in the Bundy case, after all. Even if we lived in particularly sane, stable political times, which, let's face it, we don't, it would be insane to have these laws in place that deny law enforcement a legal mechanism to prevent armed escalation. In that hypothetical I described of an armed right-wing protester crossing the line, should a police officer be at serious risk of being sued for false arrest if they intervened a little bit earlier to stop things from escalating? According to my friend in law enforcement, this is a very real concern. Which is to say that police, when confronting groups of armed right-wing protesters who could present a very real security threat, are hindered from doing anything about that potential threat, both by the understandable desire to, to avoid a firefight, and also by the real possibility of a career-ending lawsuit. Of course, none of that excuses occasions of police having used excessive force to crack down on peaceful protesters, liberal or otherwise. But this does make it pretty clear that the apparent disparity in the way we as a society handle left-wing versus right-wing protest, which is to say, unarmed liberal protesters had better behave themselves, whereas armed conservative protesters can storm into capital buildings and violate social distancing guidelines with impunity, 
is not something we can just blame on the police. There are larger structural forces at work here. To again quote my friend in law enforcement, being an armed Nazi isn't illegal, and lighting a trash can on fire is. I know that's upsetting to people, but it is what it is. But it shouldn't be. Of course, that's not to say people should be lighting trash cans on fire, but no one, Nazis or anyone else, should be coming to a protest armed up like they're in Season 3 of The Walking Dead. In a democracy, protests should be about solidarity, not intimidation. It should be about raising awareness, not raising tensions. And the last thing we should be seeing in a democracy, during a pandemic or otherwise, is an armed minority storming into state capitals to try, with implied or open threats, to impose their will on the majority of the people. So then, why the hell is that happening? We've asked the question here, I hope the conversation spreads, because this is not normal, and we should at the very least be talking about it. That's all for this episode of OK Talks. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and hit that five-star rating. And if not, well, do it anyway. As always, I'd like to thank my friend Nate Wright for creating the podcast artwork and for his technical advice. I hope neither he nor anyone else found it too jarring when the audio quality improved substantially about halfway through the episode. My new mic arrived in the mail. I also hope everybody's staying safe, healthy, and at least relatively sane despite being stuck indoors. Till the next episode, thank you for listening. Thank you.